This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Bullfinch's Mythology The Age of Fable by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 19 Hercules, Habe, and Ganymede. Hercules. Hercules was the son of Jupiter and Alcimena. As Juno was always hostile to the offspring of her husband by mortal mothers, she declared war against Hercules from his birth. She sent two serpents to destroy him as he lay in his cradle, but the precocious infant strangled them with his own hands. He was, however, by the arts of Juno, rendered subject to Eurytheus, and compelled to perform all his commands. Eurytheus enjoined upon him a succession of desperate adventures, which are called the twelve labours of Hercules. The first was the fight with the Namian lion. The valley of Namia was infested by a terrible lion. Eurytheus ordered Hercules to bring in the skin of this monster. After using in vain his club and arrows against the lion, Hercules strangled the animal with his hands. He returned, carrying the dead lion on his shoulders, but Eurythus was so frightened at the sight of it, and at this proof of the prodigious strength of the hero, that he ordered him to deliver the account of his exploits in future outside the town. His next labour was the slaughter of the Hydra. This monster ravaged the country of Argos, and dwelt in the swamp near the well of Amimon. This well had been discovered by Amimon when the country was suffering from drought, and the story was that Neptune, who loved her, had permitted her to touch the rock with his trident, and a spring of three outlets burst forth. Here the Hydra took up his position, and Hercules was sent to destroy him. The Hydra had nine heads, of which the middle one was immortal. Hercules struck off its heads with his club, but in place of the head knocked off, two new ones grew forth each time. At length, with the assistance of his faithful servant Aeolus, he burned away the heads of the Hydra, and buried the ninth, or immortal one, under a huge rock. Another labour was the cleaning of the Aegean stables. Aegeus, king of Elis, had a herd of three thousand oxen, whose stalls had not been cleansed for thirty years. Hercules brought the rivers Alpheus and Pennus through them, and cleansed them thoroughly in one day. His next labour was of a more delicate kind. Admeta, the daughter of Eurytheus, longed to obtain the girdle of the queen of the Amazons, and Eurytheus ordered Hercules to go and get it. The Amazons were a nation of women. They were very warlike, and held several flourishing cities. It was their custom to bring up only the female children. The boys were either sent away to the neighbouring nations, or put to death. Hercules was accompanied by a number of volunteers, and after various adventures at last reached the country of the Amazons. Hippolyta, the queen, received him kindly, and consented to yield him her girdle. But Juno, taking the form of an Amazon, went and persuaded the rest that the strangers were carrying off their queen. They instantly armed and came in great numbers down to the ship. Hercules, thinking that Hippolyta had acted treacherously, slew her, and taking her girdle, made sail homewards. 
Another task enjoined him was to bring to Eurythius the oxen of Gerion, a monster with three bodies, who dwelt in the island of Eurythia, the Red, so called because it lay at the west, under the rays of the setting sun. This description is thought to apply to Spain, of which Gerion was king. After traversing various countries, Hercules reached at length the frontiers of Libya and Europe, where he raised the two mountains of Calpe and Abla, as monuments of his progress, or, according to another account, rent one mountain into two, and left half on each side, forming the Straits of Gibraltar, the two mountains being called the Pillars of Hercules. The oxen were guarded by the giant Eurytion, and his two-headed dog. But Hercules killed the giant and his dog, and brought away the oxen in safety to Eurytheus. The most difficult labour of all was getting the golden apples of the Hesperides, for Hercules did not know where to find them. These were the apples which Juno had received at her wedding from the goddess of the earth, and which she had instructed to the keeping of the daughters of Hesperus, assisted by a watchful dragon. After various adventures Hercules arrived at Mount Atlas, in Africa. Atlas was one of the titans who had warred against the gods, and after they were subdued, Atlas was condemned to bear on his shoulders the weight of the heavens. He was the father of the Hesperides, and Hercules thought might, if anyone could, find the apples and bring them to him. But how to send Atlas away from his post, or bear up the heavens while he was gone? Hercules took the burden on his own shoulders, and sent Atlas to seek the apples. He returned with them, and though somewhat reluctantly, took his burden upon his shoulders again, and let Hercules return with the apples to Eurythius. Milton, in his commerce, makes the Hesperides the daughters of Hesperus and nieces of Atlas. Amidst the gardens fair of Hesperus and his daughters three, that sing about the golden tree. The poets, led by the analogy of the lovely appearance of the western sky at sunset, viewed the west as a region of brightness and glory. Hence they placed in it the isles of the blessed, the ruddy isle Eurythia, on which the bright oxen of Gerion were pastured, and the isle of the Hesperides. The apples are supposed by some to be the oranges of Spain, of which the Greeks had heard some obscure accounts. A celebrated exploit of Hercules was his victory over Antaeus. Antaeus, the son of Terra, the earth, was a mighty giant and wrestler, whose strength was invincible so long as he remained in contact with his mother earth. He compelled all strangers who came to his country to wrestle with him, on condition that if conquered, as they all were, they should be put to death. Hercules encountered him, and finding that it was of no avail to throw him, for he always rose with renewed strength from every fall, he lifted him up from the earth and strangled him in the air. Cacus was a huge giant, who inhabited a cave on Mount Aventine, and plundered the surrounding country. When Hercules was driving home the oxen of Gerion, Cacus stole part of the cattle, while the hero slept. That their footprints might not serve to show where they had been driven, he dragged them backwards by their tails to his cave so their tracks all seemed to show that they had gone in the opposite direction. Hercules was deceived by this stratagem, and would have failed to find his oxen, if it had not happened that in driving the remainder of the herd past the cave where the stolen ones were concealed, those within began to low, and were thus discovered. 
Cacus was slain by Hercules. The last exploit we shall record was bringing Seborus from the lower world. Hercules descended into Hades, accompanied by Mercury and Minerva. He obtained permission from Pluto to carry Seborus to the upper air, provided he could do it without the use of weapons. And in spite of the monster struggling, he seized him, held him fast, and carried him to Eurythius, and afterwards brought him back again. When he was in Hades, he obtained the liberty of Theseus, his admirer and imitator, who had been detained a prisoner there for an unsuccessful attempt to carry off Persephone. Hercules, in a fit of madness, killed his friend Iphitus, and was condemned for this offence to become the slave of Queen Omphale for three years. While in this service the hero's nature seemed changed. He lived effeminately, wearing at times the dress of a woman, and spinning wool with the handmaidens of Omphale, while the queen wore his lion's skin. When this service was ended, he married Deonara, and lived in peace with her three years. On one occasion, as he was travelling with his wife, they came to a river, across which the centaur Nessus carried travellers for a stated fee. Hercules himself forded the river, but gave Deonara to Nessus to be carried across. Nessus attempted to run away with her, but Hercules heard her cries and shot an arrow into the heart of Nessus. The dying centaur told Deonara to take a portion of his blood and keep it, as it might be used as a charm to preserve the love of her husband. Deonara did so, and before long fancied she had occasion to use it. Hercules, in one of his conquests, had taken prisoner a fair maiden, named Iole, of whom he seemed more fond than Deonara approved. When Hercules was about to offer sacrifices to the gods in honour of his victory, he sent to his wife for a white robe to use on the occasion. Deonara, thinking it a good opportunity to try her love spell, steeped the garment in the blood of Nessus. We are to suppose she took care to wash out all traces of it, but the magic power remained, and as soon as the garment became warm on the body of Hercules, the poison penetrated into all his limbs, and caused him the most intense agony. In his frenzy he seized Lichas, who had brought him the fatal robe, and hurled him into the sea. He wrenched off the garment, but it stuck to his flesh, and with it he tore away whole pieces of his body. In this state he embarked on board a ship, and was conveyed home. Deonara, on seeing what she had unwittingly done, hung herself. Hercules, prepared to die, ascended to Mount Eta, where he built a funeral pile of trees, gave his bow and arrows to Philactetes, and laid himself down on the pile, his head resting on his club, and his lion-skin spread over him. With a countenance as serene as if he were taking his place at a feastal board, he commanded Philactetes to apply the torch. The flames spread apace, and soon invested the whole mass. Milton thus alludes to the frenzy of Hercules. As when Alcides, from Ochelia crowned, with conquest, felt the envenomed robe, and tore, through pain, up by the root, Thalassian pines, and Lychus from the top of Etta through, into the Euboic Sea. Footnote. Alcides, a name of Hercules. The gods themselves felt troubled at seeing the champion of the earth so brought to his end. But Jupiter, with cheerful countenance, thus addressed them. I am pleased to see your concern, my princes, 
and am gratified to perceive that I am the ruler of a loyal people, and that my son enjoys your favour. For although your interest in him arises from his noble deeds, yet it is not the less gratifying to me. But now I say to you, fear not. He who conquered all else is not to be conquered by those flames which you see blazing on Mount Etta. Only his mother's share in him can perish. What he derived from me is immortal. I shall take him, dead to earth, to the heavenly shores, and I require of all of you to receive him kindly. If any of you feel grieved at his attaining this honour, yet no one can deny that he has deserved it. The gods all gave their assent. Juno only heard the closing words with some displeasure that she should be so particularly pointed at, yet not enough to make her regret the determination of her husband. So when the flames had consumed the mother's share of Hercules, the diviner part, instead of being injured thereby, seemed to start forth with new vigour, to assume a more lofty port, and a more awful dignity. Jupiter enveloped him in a cloud, and took him up in a four-horse chariot to dwell among the stars. As he took his place in heaven, Atlas felt the added weight. Juno, now reconciled to him, gave him a daughter Habe in marriage. The poet Schiller, in one of his pieces called The Ideal in Life, illustrates the contrast between the practical and the imaginative in some beautiful stanzas, of which the last two may be thus translated. Deep degraded to a coward slave, Endless contests bore Alcides brave, Through the thorny path of suffering led, Slew the hydra, crushed the lion's might, Threw himself to bring his friends to light, Living in the skiff that bears the dead. All the torments, every toil of earth, Juno's hatred on him could impose, Well he bore them, from his fated birth To life's grandly mournful close. Till the god, the earthy part forsaken, From the man in flames asunder taken, Drank the heavenly ether's purer breath, Joyous in the new unwanted lightness, Soared he upwards to celestial brightness, Earth's dark heavy burden lost in death. High Olympus gives harmonious greetings, To the hall where reigns his sire adored. Youth's bright goddess, with a blush at a meeting, Gives the nectar to her lord. S.G.B. Habe and Ganymede Habe, the daughter of Juno and goddess of youth, was cup-bearer to the gods. The usual story is that she resigned her office on becoming the wife of Hercules. But there is another statement which our countryman Crawford, the sculptor, has adopted in his group of Habe and Ganymede, now in the Athenium Gallery. According to this, Hay was dismissed from her office in consequence of a fall which she met with one day in attendance on the gods. Her successor was Ganymede, a Trojan boy, whom Jupiter, in the disguise of an eagle, seized and carried off from the midst of his played fellows on Mount Ida, bore up to heaven, and installed in the vacant place. Tennyson, in his Palace of Art, describes among the decorations on the walls a picture representing this legend. There too flushed Ganymede, his rosy thigh half buried in the eagle's down, sole as a flying star shot through the sky, above the pillared town. And in Shelley's Prometheus, Jupiter calls to his cupbearer thus, 
pour forth heaven's wine, Idian Ganymede, and let it fill the dead ill cups like fire. The beautiful legend of the choice of Hercules may be found in the Tatler, number ninety seven. End of chapter nineteen.